Welcome to EdTech Examined, a series about educational technology and what you need to know. I'm Eric Christensen. And I'm Chris Hans. All right, welcome to another episode of EdTech Examined. How's it going, Eric? Uh, things are going well. I feel very pink from being in the sun yeah. all afternoon, but uh, it, it was it was good. Yeah, no, landscaping. There you go. Maybe we'll have to reintroduce our our landscaping tips and you know gardening tips and stuff for our audience. I don't know if I have any tips uh, so much as that I left the lawn to cut and did some yard work longer than anticipated. They're changing some of the sidewalks in my neighborhood to make them more accessible. Like if you had a stroller or in a wheelchair or something, which I think is good. Plus they're doing the um, proper sloping for the sidewalk that's right in front of my driveway, which is a huge plus for me because I have a fairly steep driveway, which is fine because I have an SUV, but people drive in with their cars, totally bottoms them out. Oh, really? <laughs> so this is an improvement. And they're doing a great job. Like those, those folks who come in and do the um, cement finishing, that's a real art if they, to get it right. Yeah, absolutely. And, they, and they were working in the rain and they still got it perfect. And they have some, you know, they have to do the asphalt and do some filling. But um, I was like, well, I can't leave the lawn anymore because I didn't want to cut it while it was drying because I don't want, you know, crap to blow on their drying cement, but it's mostly dried and they'll finish it, I'm sure on Monday. So I was like, okay, now is my chance to like mow the lawn. I have not done the weed eating yet. Um, yeah, but it was, it was long. I had to empty the, the bag, my mulch grass, the mulching bag was full like four times because oh, yeah. it was so long. Well, there you go. Put a new blade on the lawnmower. I sharpened it. So it's like really good cut. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure our audience loves these <laughs> Those little side things. I, I don't, I like, I was working on stuff this morning and, you know, go to Home Depot and get some things. I, I do kind of enjoy it. I find it uh, kind of meditative. Like today, we have a bunch, just a bunch of news articles for this episode. We don't have any real tech tips or anything. Yeah, I guess landscaping tips is a good substitute. But it was helpful because I was able to think through those pieces while I, while I do work outside, right? And so yeah, I, I do no, like for that. sure. Yeah. Well, we'll see. Hopefully, there's not another snowstorm. Maybe we we might have one more. <laughs> you know, I really hope not because. You know, now my um, spinach and peas have been, you know, moved from the seedlings into my planters outside, oh, and I really yeah. don't want them to hit frost. So yeah. cucumbers, next weekend, the cucumbers and everything else goes in the raised beds. So well, there you go. You might have to share some pictures of your, your gardening. It'll be what it's going to be. I'm sure it'll be fine. Yeah. Nothing revelatory, that's for sure. So should we um, get into it then? Yeah. So did you want to start us off with our, our friend, your, our, our dear friend who we've never uh, met, uh, Scott Galloway? Uh, our dear friend that probably doesn't know us from a hole in the wall. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but uh, anyways, yeah, the first article that we, uh, and we'll include these uh, links in our show notes, but um, Scott Galloway's uh, EdTech startup section four. So this is the one where uh, he's the NYU uh, professor uh, in business there. And uh, he's created an ed tech uh, startup where he offers, and now it's actually, we talked about last um, episode where they've even moved it to subscription basis, but uh, they've laid off a quarter of the staff. And uh, it's not, not just, you know, section four, but there's other companies mm -hmm. that have actually had to go and lay off. And I think this is probably more so just a, a trend in the tech sector. I don't think it's limited to just ed tech, but with, um, you know, it seems like that uh, bubble is bursting. And so many companies are having to go and make adjustments. Uh, and uh, yeah, so I mean, some of the other ones that they talked about in this article, there was uh, Vendadu, which is a EdTech unicorn that cut 200 people. Uh, Duolingo apparently has uh, also come down in terms of its stock price, Coursera and so on. Well, and it's interesting. So like, it seemed based on this article from TechCrunch that the layoffs at section four, so that's online learning, 
it's all online learning, I suppose. Yeah. Is it uh, synchronous? Is it all asynchronous? They have I guess some, so. Yeah, they have some that are synchronous sessions as well. Depends okay. on the uh, the type of course and so on. Like for example, I, I noticed um, our friend, uh, former VP of Netflix, uh, Gib Biddle. Uh, he's actually doing synchronous sessions. So th there's recordings. There's asynchronous, but he does have some a few synchronous sessions for his um, classes as well. On section four. On section four, yeah. It's interesting. It seemed like it wasn't as bad as some of the other layoffs. It wasn't um, like company wide. It seems the under the understanding that I had from section four originally, and I don't know as much about it, Chris. So please correct me if I'm wrong, because I don't want to mislead the listeners. But originally, I thought it was supposed to be graduate equivalent, so like a you know marketing MBA equivalents, because that's you know Scott Galloway teaches mm -hmm. business. And it was supposed to be kind of, you know, 700, 800 bucks a course. And then you would get ongoing access for it. It's moved to a subscription yeah. now, but it seems that the subscription they've cut a bunch of the, uh, or the layoffs have been targeted more to production. Yeah. Uh, it seems like, so I guess there's not as much, like, it sounds like the company's done well, but they're not having as much individual accounts growth. So like if you and me signed up versus maybe sort of like institutional, like professional development subscriptions, that's the impression that I got. Yeah. And so, yeah, they are trying to push more to get, um, and that's where part of it happened uh, where they're, they haven't hit their numbers and I, you know, in terms of um, their targets and so on. So yeah, I think basically they're trying to go and hit up uh, companies and get like, you know, uh, enterprise type of subscriptions as well. And, and I'm sure, I mean, it probably makes logical sense. If you have a bunch of content now, a bunch of courses, probably the, the logical step is to go and cut your production team, right? Because uh, if you're not going to go and introduce new products and new courses and, and so on. So, um, I think it's probably a, a prudent, uh, kind of step for them. And, um, you know, hopefully, uh, the, and yeah, you are correct in terms of uh, basically uh, initially they had courses that were like 700 bucks or what have you. Uh, some I think were even a little bit more than that, but uh, it was to bring something, the equivalent of an MBA course to the masses and in a uh, much more compressed timeline. And then you would have access to your cohort and, you know, Slack and, you know, be, being able to go and communicate with them. And so now they've just moved to subscription, which is, it's interesting too. Um, so, I mean, the, the cost has come down, I think it was $83 US per month. And so you have to do it for a, an annual basis, but now you have access to all their courses. That's pretty expensive. I guess not, depending on compared to doing an MBA in the United States through a large university. It's yeah. a lot cheaper than that. But it, yeah, it is interesting. I think that's, this is an area where online learning, uh, these companies, like this is a very different business model than Udemy or Coursera because, or at least with Udemy and some of the other platforms, anybody can go in and create an account and pitch a course. I think anybody can make their course and then there's a cut, a share, right? So it's, it's crowdsourced in a way it's user-generated content where it seems like the section four stuff they'll bring in people, but it's, they have a production team for everybody, probably for consistency. So yeah. that doesn't scale very well, in my opinion. Um, like, and it seems like online learning platforms that um, have done better are things like Masterclass. There's yeah. there's an example of one where I haven't heard of a lot of layoffs. And, and actually I would encourage people to check out Masterclass um, because they're just like lectures. I don't think there's any assessments. Maybe there is, I, I could be wrong, but I've never actually subscribed, but some really interesting courses on negotiation, a lot of like very practical life skills from like yeah. world renowned experts, but they don't release like so many courses that I think they're under the gun from a production standpoint. Yeah. And, the, and it seems like the courses they do release, um, perhaps have a longer lifespan. Yeah. And I mean, so with MBA and, you know, they need to be updated, right? Yeah. No. And uh, again, I think in this case, uh, it's interesting because he's basically, he's curated, he's selected certain people, you know, that are kind of the top of the top uh, in terms of uh, academics and even, you know, industry professionals, right? So, the, um, and, you know, I, I know a few people that have actually taken the courses prior to the subscription model. And, uh, you know, for them, 
some of the the reasons were that uh, you know now you can go and do it in a very compressed intensive time frame you get access to these you know uh, the uh, like scott galloway and other people on the team there depending on whatever course and you can walk away and actually have a credential they don't necessarily need to go back to school and get an mba or or what have you right so uh, it's just more so the, to apply it to their work situation or maybe their startup business. Yeah, it, it's a, it's interesting, and it's a, I think it's a a good it was a good uh, story by TechCrunch, and I think an internet an interesting cautionary tale. I thought maybe perhaps useful to the people listening to this because, of course, we have faculty, we have quite a few educators who listen, uh, we have some students who listen, so. You know, there's an a, there's an example of a company trying to curate and control everything. They almost have like a Netflix production model for their uh, online courses, which is very different from other platforms where anybody can go pitch stuff, right? Like you're not if you pitch something and have a very successful course in a different platform like Udemy or something else, you're not going to be kicked off because they have their they lay off their web development team. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So interesting. I kind of like the crowdsource model better, but that's that's just that's just me. I guess it's hit and miss. It's less consistently good, perhaps. Yeah. Um, what's our next story? Oh, we do have a kind of a, I guess, a non-education, somewhat related, tangentially related. Uh, this was from Engadget. Many uh, the tech blogs have reported this, but Apple finally killed off or stopped production of the iPod. So the, the last iPod was the iPod Touch, um, and they, they finally uh, got rid of it. Of course, the, the Nanos and the Classics and the Shuffles and all that stuff have, have gone the way of the Dodo a long time ago. Um, but it's an interesting article. I don't, a lot of it doesn't apply to education. It kind of talks about the history of the iPod as uh, an important device because it moved us away from you know cds and albums to more like tracks uh, one of the things i think is undersold about the ipod is that while it was successful and that it gave people a very easy and legitimate way to purchase music instead of pirating it i think in some ways it, i think it actually improved the quality of music because we would purchase albums for you know one or two top 40 hit tracks and then the rest of it was kind of filler because you had to buy the rest of the album with it where the ability to buy one or two songs at a time or an album for ten dollars i think kind of forced the music industry to put out more well-rounded albums and then of course streaming has totally disrupted that though i still purchase a lot of digital music and i i don't stream as much but um it's interesting. I, I feel bad. I guess that the area where it's most useful to us is where we've talked about uh, focus and, co and concentration and especially music that doesn't have lyrics in it. I have a, a variety of Spotify playlists and uh, iTunes playlists that don't have lyrics because I listen to them while I, while I work. Daft Punk songs, classical jazz, all sorts of stuff. And there is no real way now, I guess, unless you don't go with a non-Apple device and you go with like a really cheap MP3 player, there is no really uh, good, I would say, um, single purpose music device. I think Sony still makes the Walkman, but I don't know how you move content to it. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure there's probably some, they've figured out some way to move the MP3s there, but um... Yeah, I mean, I, I actually recently was watching a documentary on this with um, uh, Jimmy Levine, and they were talking about uh, Dr. Dre and and so on, and uh, just the whole music um, uh, industry. And really, uh, back when like Napster came into place, uh, and where you could go and download uh, the pirated music, this Apple was the first company that came with those digital rights, and you know, uh, and that's where a lot of these uh, companies that the music companies they actually uh accepted this uh you know the the apple uh, itunes store as a way to go and offset some of that piracy and uh, yeah it's interesting and i mean I, I read that article and it's kind of sad because again like as we've talked about it's nice to have uh, you know something where you don't have to have all these other kind of um, mm -hmm. interrupting apps and so on and i guess the only other solution that you have is taking your smartphone and basically deleting everything or maybe working on the notifications or something muting them i mean the ipod is still supported through the software yeah I mean, so I have here still working. 
the iPod fifth generation, the video. So it has a 30 gig hard drive. Hard drive is original. Uh, I did put a new battery and a new screen and a new uh, plastic cover. I left the back, which is a little bit scratched and dented, but I refurbished it myself. And so you can buy parts for these things and, and kind of remake them work. You can even buy, uh, I don't know if folks are interested, if there's anybody out there who does have an old iPod that's dying, uh, the hard drives often go because there's small spinning drives in the old ones. You can buy uh, all the parts for these devices, but you can also buy conversion kits that replace the hard drive with solid state. So it's an, it's the size of the hard drive, but an SD card goes in it. It kind of tricks the device into thinking it's a spinning drive dramatically improves the battery life. And then of course speeds it up, right? Because of the read and write is a lot faster. So there's lots of ways to keep these old iPods alive. That's what I'm going to do indefinitely. I mean, even the, the, on that note, I think that's uh, I mean, who knows, maybe there might be a resurgence in just refurbishing some of these um, devices and so on. Well, I tried to see, I, I mean, the iPod touch was never my, my jam because it's like a phone, right? But I went to see yeah. how many, well, as soon as I, that came out and I went to the Apple store and they were gone, including all the refurbished ones. <laughs> so I was going to see if I could get one, but they're, they're gone now. I'm sure you can buy used ones on Kijiji for like a huge premium. All right. Next, uh, we have um, Google had their I.O. conference. Uh, so uh, this is their big uh, conference where they talk about their various devices and, um, you know, whether there's phones and other things. So, uh, I mean, well, I guess we'll go kind of quickly go through some of the, the announcements that they had. But uh, they've introduced a Pixel 6a. So uh, this isn't, um, uh, it's kind of an in-between model. Uh, so it's at 449 US, uh, I would assume, based off of this article. Uh, but it's in between, they're kind of top of the line. And so they've just uh, added in a new, um, you know, kind of a model there for people. And uh, it's interesting because I guess last year, uh, they, they've been running advertisements against uh, uh, Apple where they're kind of moving towards removing the head jack and all this kind of stuff, the, the headphone jack. And so now they've actually done the same. <laughs> they didn't really talk much about it. I don't understand the removal of the jack. I find that to be incredibly inconvenient. But you know, I don't use a Pixel phone, so I, I, yeah. I mean, did it have one before? I thought they got rid of it some time ago, but this is the first time they got rid of it. Uh, I'm not sure that uh, this is just based off of the the article that they talked about. Uh, you know, this last year, uh, you know, they they even talked about the 5A having a headphone jack, and this one doesn't have one. Yeah, so and I mean, I'm assuming it's this, this is year. good. This is good news that they're releasing. Uh, so I mean, the Pixel phone is, of course, Google's homemade hardware because they bought HTC, I think. So that's where they're getting it. Um, but this is useful. I mean, for educators or students um, who don't want to use an Apple device, who need a phone or need something for school, I guess the advantage of an I, uh, the Google Suite is that a lot of the schools use Google Suite, Docs, Google Meet, so that stuff tends to work better. Uh, on the Android side. Yeah. yeah so they're sure. also introducing their, a Pixel watch. I was unaware that they had not released a smartwatch up until this point. But I do see a lot of students wearing um, not just Apple watches, but uh, those Garmin running watches and Fitbits. Some students I know like manual watches. So on one hand, they have a watch and on the other, they have like the Fitbit, which is fair. Oh, I mean, that's interesting. I wear mechanical watches. So it's I've never been able to square wearing the Apple watch and that I look, I would look crazy, but, uh, the Fitbit is a little bit more, you know, like a band is a little bit more, um, discreet. So yeah. I do see a lot of students wearing this stuff. Um, interesting, mostly, I probably mostly Samsung, but this is a good option. Um, it's, you know, it's actually the, the watch thing is interesting because I've spoken to students every time I see them, if I see a trend of them using devices, I'll ask them, they're like, you know, why do you use this? Why do you take notes on the iPad instead of your laptop? Or why do you, you know, what devices are you using? And the, they say that the reason that they, many students have told me the reason that they get a watch is for the reminders and the step counting, because they say that they've put on weight or lost muscle mass because they're sitting so much during school. Oh, okay. uh, and it really, really helps them. And I, I never cued into it, but I thought back and I thought, you're right. I spend a lot of time sitting 
when I was in university, which is probably not good for you. So this is a this is a good if this if this is a good product. Of course, it's not out yet, yeah. um, but that's a good option for someone who doesn't want to live in the Apple ecosystem. I think maybe particularly for students and people on campus, they want to keep their step count up, right? Yeah, well, and the costs are less than, let's say, the, like the Apple side of things. And yeah, I mean, you're right. Samsung is probably the more prevalent Android, um, you know, uh, uh, the watch OS uh, that they've had. Uh, but now, uh, you know, if you look back in terms of the history, Google bought out Fitbit. And so they've probably been working on uh, developing this to, you know, Pixel Watch. And so it's just a matter of time before it comes out. Yeah, and it's integrated with Fitbit. They also released, um, they teased a new phone. So they introduced a cheaper version of the new phone they do every year, the mid-launch device. And I guess in the fall, the Pixel 7 phone will come out. Also new earbuds that do no noise cancellation. Uh, pretty typical. I, I don't know about you, but I was most interested that they were coming out with a tablet. When was the last time that an Android developer released a tablet that anybody cared about? <laughs> well, I mean, uh, in this case, I, I think we're, especially because they're going to have that Tensor chip, the Tensor powered tablet, it's going to come out. So I, it'll be interesting to see when they come uh, release this uh, next year, uh, because the that uh, that will probably be uh, something that will be very competitive against the um, the iPad. I would hope so. Um, I the only Android tablet I ever owned is that I bought a Nexus Seven when it came out. Oh, okay. And that was a great seven inch, a little tablet that I carried everywhere. So that was a cool device. But I hope um, that this that this is good. I mean, I, I guess it's good to bring up just for people who don't want to use Apple products. And I, I understand that the iPad dominates. I don't think you have to use everything from one company. Use all Google apps and Google products, or if your school is on that suite, um, rather than carrying a laptop or a Chromebook around, this may, this may be a good option. Yeah, for sure. And then I guess the only other thing that they talked about was also they're working on their augmented reality glasses. Yeah. So did they show it? Uh, they just showed a pair, but uh, again, I mean, they haven't really talked much about it, uh, but, uh, you know, they're going to be joining with uh, uh, in the AR race uh, with like companies like Snap and Meta and apparently Apple's working on their own um, glasses and so on. So, so I find this interesting, the whole uh, AR glasses. I, there's two questions I would have. This may be something we can talk about that would be interesting in the education context. What is the pitch, the selling feature for me to buy a pair of glasses that have like, you know, a camera looking at my eyes, potentially gaze tracking as well as outside and showing me information. And then what are the implications of walking around with a head mounted camera on a campus? Well, I mean, <laughs> it's funny because later on in this article, they even talk about Google their commitment to privacy and so on but uh again, well i don't believe them at all but yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> exactly but i mean it's yeah i mean you bring up a good point because again most people i don't think they even realize like with google what is their bread and butter what if you know where are they getting their revenue it's from data right and so based off of that data i mean basically what you're kind of uh, kind of hinting on eric is that uh, you're basically going to become like those Google map cars, but now on the indoors and walking around. <laughs> what I'd say is that I don't know that they've had major data leaks at Google. I'm not suggesting that they don't do everything that they can to anonymize data. And I'm not, I'm not so much worrying, worried about things getting tracked directly to me, but it, there's, there's an ethical consideration, especially in an education environment. So let's say I use a, I choose to use a pixel Android phone instead of an iPhone, because I don't, you know, I prefer to have the integration with the Google suite and their apps over say the privacy pitch that Apple claims. And I'm not saying that Apple's perfect either. I'm not, I just use it for uh, interface preferences. I'm not trying to claim that they're morally superior because they have a privacy focus brand, but it's a little bit different um, with any other device because 
I have control. Like it's only, I am impacted by my own choices. But if, if someone's walking around with something that gathers data from everybody else's face, I have no say in the matter. I have no opt-in, I have no opt-out. So I think about this, if you, if you record some, if you're trying to get a prof canceled and, you know, hold up your phone to record a video, it's pretty obvious. Yeah. Everyone has a video camera and you can kind of sneakily do it, but you got to point the lens somewhere, right? So somebody's going to notice presumably, but with glasses, especially as they become more and more invisible, the sensors and that, and that I would assume, I'm assuming there's going to be outward facing cameras. That means that what is the ethical protocol here? Hmm. I, I find that, you know, I'm not going to, and what if they integrate them with uh, lenses for corrective vision? Well, now it's harder to ask someone to take off their glasses because they're going to be blind <laughs> as a bat. And that doesn't seem fair. Yeah. And so, but I do, I do wonder about this. I, you know, and I, it occurred to me by, because last week, actually, I, I was wearing a, a shirt and I had my phone in my front shirt pocket just because I don't, you know, I, I, pockets are full of crap these days. All the stuff we have to carry around, there's masks and keys and wallets and phones. So I had it in my shirt pockets, a bit more comfortable, but I didn't realize that the lens was facing forward. So a student was like, whoa, like, are you walking around recording people? And I was like, you know what? I'm not. And thanks for letting me know. So I turned it upside down, but people, people could notice that there was the camera lens yeah, and, and that turned them off. And I'm glad that they told me. But I'm thinking, how is this going to work if it's embedded on my face? But I mean, even to that, I, I didn't think about this like based on your comment earlier, Eric. But I mean, what's stopping anybody, like let's say a student from just recording, right? I mean, whether you, it doesn't have to be video either. It could just be audio. And so. True. I mean, most campuses have some sort of, I mean, we can't necessarily know. We're supposed to ask permission first. So when I was yeah. in school, I had a digital recorder that recorded directly and saved it to my laptop. And I asked the prof, I was like, Hey, can I record this lecture so I can listen to it? And then they just said, yeah, please. I mean, it was, you didn't have to sign anything, but it was like, you know, please don't, you know, upload this and send it to CBC or, or the new your local news channel or something like that. And that's fine. Yeah. But eh, there's something about as these devices, smart devices, though they don't seem so smart, um, become more integral to our clothing or embedded in your head or like whatever, it's going to be harder and harder to request people put it away or don't take it off. I mean, it, yeah, no, for sure. I mean, it's, uh, and I don't trust I, people I, not to record quite frankly. Yeah. Well, that's why I, I think uh, I, I didn't even really, uh, uh, think about it until you just mentioned it right now, but yeah, I mean, what's, what's stopping anybody from recording anything, right? I mean, even if it's just audio and, um, I mean, sure we have our kind of, um, uh, code of conduct, but I mean, at the end of the day, how much uh, how, of a hassle would it be to actually go and enforce something like that? Right. It is. a Yeah, you're right. It is a hassle. I mean, but there's also social norms, right? Like if you're holding up a phone, people next door to you, next beside sitting beside you are like, what are you doing? Right. Like it's, but nobody can tell if I'm recording. So no one would think to tell me to not do it. If I had something yeah. on my head, I guess you could just take like duct tape to class and you'd be like, yeah, before we start, everybody with smart glasses has to put big silver duct tape over their, over their glass frames. There you go. <laughs> just like, just like how we put it on our uh, post-it notes on the cameras on our laptops. Yeah. Well, and that's where, again, like this is a, it's a bit of a cat and mouse game, right? I mean, as this technology comes out, who until you start thinking about some of these implications and then, you know, coming out with laws and measures or what have you, you got to kind of uh, anticipate some of that. And it's, it's hard. There's, and then there could be a, unintended uh, consequences from that. Well, I think, I, I guess I bring it up. I mean, there's all sorts of things in society, you know, things change. I mean, there's all sorts of social norms that have to catch up to technology and I'm not saying the, the sky is falling. I just, I can, I'm concerned mostly in an education environment because the whole purpose is for people, uh, it's getting harder and harder to do, depending on who you ask, uh, to talk about things often controversial in a classroom and people will, they're, in, they're kind of working out their mind and, and their opinions on issues and working through critical thinking problems on the fly. That's why recording in a classroom is so devastating because people haven't formed an opinion yet. It's really easy to catch people 
as they're figuring something out. And I just already, I see more and more instructors that I work with uh, or that I know request that no devices in class, even the laptop, yeah. uh, you know, put, I mean, they can't know for sure, but the percentage, the fact that everyone has to put it away means that the, the likelihood, the statistical likelihood that someone has a device that they can't see that's recording is low versus everyone having one out, right? So, and the reason they do that isn't to be mean, but it's to, to assure the other students, it's not the instructor that's so concerned, it's to assure the other students that they can speak freely. And I don't know how you do that with something in your face. It'll be really difficult when people have uh, eyes with cameras in them, like biometrics and stuff, and you have to, you know, remove your biotics before you come to class. <laughs> <laughs> well, by that point, I, hopefully, I don't know, maybe we won't have to, we won't be in the academic institutions by the time that we retired, but we'll still around. be talking about it on this podcast. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. we'll have to get someone on. Oh, man. Anyways, that's my I, I shouldn't uh, derail this discussion. That's just something that occurred to me. Uh, head mounted displays that are hidden are a concern for me. So that's just something I, I've been thinking about. Yeah, no, for sure. And I guess uh, the only other few things they talked about, like the Google's AI power is growing. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, they're highly investing in that. Uh, talking about user privacy, the Android uh, features. Uh, so they're doubling down on the Android 12 features and the Google wallet is back. And so, uh, you know, again, I think this is just where people are. It, it's interesting. I've read a number of articles as of late, but uh, it seems like there's um, uh, even maybe passwords might go away with uh, some of these smartphones and so on, and even for payment and other things. So a lot of it is being more kind of encapsulated and in, integrated into your devices. Yeah, I am when we, you know, there are standards for privacy, passwordless privacy. I blogged about one, the five, the new FIDO standards. I have a hard time believing that this is going to happen anytime soon. Um, every so many years, that's a very predictable trend. There's a big article and a big push from one of these companies about the need to get rid of passwords. But it, it's the, the issue is that it always has to be tied to some sort of device. So it has to be like within a certain Bluetooth meter range for you to unlock everything. It has to use biometrics. And the issue has always been, I drop my device in the toilet. Now I can't get into anything because there's no way to back that up. And then of course, if that data from the phone that unlocks everything has to be uploaded to the cloud. You have to be able to get in the cloud that requires a password. So there's always a password somewhere <laughs> and there's always, a, and it's like, how do you move it between devices and uh, to get in like having a, it's almost kind of like having a, a key to a lock, but it's a, a, a computer that has knows that you are you, so to speak, and can unlock it. But the concern is, is that how, what happens if that, you know, dies yeah for like sure. the ipod like what if the ipod was your uh authenticator device and then they discontinued it and they didn't support it anymore <laughs> how's this gonna work well even i i think it's a we talked about this offline with um our uh, audio producer engineer chris but even just over this last uh you know two years where we've had to wear the the face masks and so on having you know, let's say with our uh, iPhones, being able to log in with Face ID, well, it, it doesn't recognize it when you have your mask on. And so now you have to enter in your password. I mean, it, it would have been nice to actually have the, the touch ID button. And maybe it's something that you could put on the back of the device or something. I'm not, I'm not sure, but like the, easy to consider. the easy solution, Chris, is that clearly everyone needs to, buy, who has an iPhone just has to buy an Apple watch. And then that lets you into your phone. And then all you have to do is buy another $700 device that you replace every three years. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so I will say I still have a touch ID iPhone with a huge chin and forehead on it. Uh, my iPhone eight plus for this reason, because we had masks and, uh, my wife got a new phone, a 13. And then I realized how much easier it is to log in. I also realized that a battery change in Canada for an iPhone is 65 bucks and they do it okay. in the store. Oh, for that much? For an, and it takes an hour. You come back in an hour and they had a brand new battery. And it's not like the phone is slow, but it clocks down as the battery cycles get to it, right? So now it's 
back up to full speed. Hmm. Well, that's cool. Keep those touch ID. We need another touch ID phone. That's what I want. Yeah. And maybe one with the headphone jack back. <laughs> so. Yeah, I'm, I'm old school, but that's okay. That's okay. Um, we did have an article from, so this is an interesting one. So this is the National Post, but I think it's a republication of an, I think it's a reposting of an article from the conversation, which is a yeah. higher education blog. Now I have a question, uh, Post Media, which owns the National Post and the Globe and Mail and a bunch of Canadian newspapers, do they also own the conversation? Is that how they're able to do this? To my knowledge, no, I believe um, the conversation is something that a bunch of universities have banded together to go and uh, allow academics to go and publish on certain things. So, uh, and I think be, with that, it's basically open for any publication. So the, there's no rights to it, so they can republish on any platform. So um, yeah, when I first came across this article, it was actually on conversation. Uh, I guess now we're has made it to the mainstream. Yeah, it's interesting that it was republished. I've just never seen that where it's republished. I'll have to dig yeah. into the conversation and how it works more. But yeah, um, I see it all the time when uh, like Fast Company, for example, mm, that's a, uh, a lot of times they'll like republish uh, conversation articles. And, you know, presumably, I bet you they don't pay anybody for it, right? Because it's uh, there's it's basically reuse um, in terms of the uh, the copyright side of things. Well, th this was a really interesting one that you found, and it was, you know, four lessons from online learning. So I don't want to take the thunder away. I mean, you may want to kick this off, but it was called four lessons uh, from online learning that should stick after the pandemic. And it had a huge author list um, yeah. and all from Athabasca or some yeah. from Athabasca, some maybe not, but it looked like mostly Athabasca I University. Think, no, I think they're all from uh, Athabasca University. And so that, that's how I actually came across it was uh, there was somebody that I have a, a connection on uh, LinkedIn and that, that person shared it. But um, yeah, it seems like a bunch of faculty members at Athabasca. And I mean, they're an online university, so it makes sense. But um, they've basically just talked about some of the things that we should continue to have even after the pandemic. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's a nice little summary where they've highlighted these four uh, kind of issues or um, things that we should uh, uh, take the best of uh, from this, uh, you know, post pandemic. But um, uh, the first one was learning uh, to learn online, which I, I think it's, um, it's probably the maybe the it's good that they placed it number one, because that that is something, I mean, I, even I've talked to students as of late, it's, um, it's certainly a different uh, mindset that you need to go in uh, when you're taking an online course. Yeah, I mean, you have to know, I mean, there's an expectation that there's a little bit more self-management. So, uh, and you've brought this up before about modules like at the UFC that are recommended to teach people how to go about uh, approaching an online course, particularly if they've never had one before. Yeah. Well, it used to be like when I uh, would teach in continuing education, if you wanted to take an online course as a student, you actually had to take a course called learning online. And now uh, uh, ever since, I think it was even before the pandemic, they just lifted that um, requirement. But I thought it was actually a good idea because then, you know, people, they get uh, accustomed to the learning management system. You know, they get to uh, get an idea of how things are going to uh, be delivered and, you know, what to expect from an online course, because it is different, right? I mean, it's, there are certain things that you can substitute, like, for example, um, you know, the on uh, in an online course, like a, the discussion board is basically substituting for classroom discussion. Mm -hmm. Is it the same? Probably not. But it's, uh, that's the kind of medium that we're using, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, just even basic familiarity with the with the platform that your institution has subscribed to, right? Um, it's interesting. The second one was designing online teaching with purpose. Uh, that makes perfect sense. I think the argument here is that, and we've said this many times, that emergency remote online instruction is not the same as courses designed um, with best practices for teaching online in mind, that kind of pedagogy. Though I would say, depending on what's been asked of the instructor, this is also a tall order. And I think you were the first to say that, Chris, it can take you know six, nine months 
to build a course in the ground up from an online environment. It's hard to do in like a week. Yeah, no, for sure. And, uh, and I, I think that still, it probably a, a challenge and a, a problem that we still have, right? Because these students, they think that these courses, this is what online courses are like, but they, it really isn't, right? I mean, this is kind of by, for the last, you know, two years, I've been mentioning this in terms of, this is what I describe as emergency remote delivery. And uh, even, I, I think I've mentioned this previously, but, uh, you know, people think that, for example, like a, a number of our colleagues, they just recorded lectures. Now, recording lectures doesn't necessarily mean that's the best way. In fact, um, many of my courses uh, that I teach online that have been always online, I don't even have recorded lectures. And I even asked my uh, program managers about that, like what, why that was uh, considered the best way. And apparently there's been studies done on this where, uh, you know, that isn't, again, you got to go and develop uh, different resources and different uh, based on your pedagogy. But just because you have a video doesn't mean that you're going to go and uh, instill some learning. And in fact, there's probably all sorts of video content that's already on the internet that you could repurpose and use mm -hmm. as well, right? So I have courses where I don't even have any lectures whatsoever from me. Mm -hmm. um, that being said, I could, if I wanted to, I could go and lecture on them and I could record myself. But uh, it, uh, it certainly is a, quite the investment that you have to go and make. The fourth thing that they discussed on this article, um, oh, sorry, the third one was uh, blending space and time online. So they said the pandemic education popularized the vocabulary of synchronous and asynchronous. That was the title of our synchronous versus asynchronous is the title of our first episode. Yeah. Um, and it says synchronous replicated the physical classrooms through real time digitally mediated teaching while asynchronous meant working independently using with materials designed for a physical classroom. Moving forward, we need to think about how timing and presence impacts learning. Um, so they say Athabasca students come together in time and space through blended collaborative synchronous and asynchronous. So they kind of go back and forth. Maybe there's some live sessions that you have to attend, but there's some videos plus you make time with your teammates. I mean, that's kind of similar to what we do in a lot of face-to-face -face courses. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I, I thought that was fair. I mean, that's that's a good mixing up the modality uh, to keep people engaged is a good strategy, in my opinion. I have to admit, though, the fourth one on this list I'm highly skeptical of, and this is purely my bias. At this point in my life, anytime I see blockchain, crypto, AI, or any of the other buzzwords and how it's going to solve things. I assume immediately that the article is like 10 years ahead of its time because they talked about how the COVID, how COVID-19 began this disruption for online learning. And then of course, AI will continue it. And, and so down in this section of the article, um, it says research suggests that adopting online and AI tools needs to be deliberate, coupling with supportive digital infrastructure and highly responsive student support. Um, so I guess they're, they're talking about is that uh, there will be, oh, sorry, I should move up. It says student accessed uh, a simulated work experience in a, a pace structure, irrespective of location. So they're talking about uh, kind of a virtual co-op. They were able to practice working as a team, problem solving, conflict resolution, ethical reasoning, and leadership while working on an assigned project. Makes perfect sense and it works well online. Students received immediate and detailed feedback from an AI coach, allowing for extensive experimentation and revision to master concepts honed. Am I out of uh, my lane to suggest that I am not exactly convinced that AI coaches are? as robust as are claimed <laughs> or as portrayed <laughs> in this article? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think we're there yet. I mean, it even talks about how you'll get real-time feedback based off of these AI algorithms and, and so on and so forth. I, I don't know what tool is out there. If we, if we have it, that's awesome. I'd be the first to subscribe to it, but I, I don't think we're there yet. Uh, but uh, maybe in the future, that could be something. Uh, but um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I, I'm skeptical as well uh, when when these type of uh, 
terms kind of come up. And in fact, if you look at it like this whole uh, Web3, I mean, this is where all sorts of these kind of buzzwords are being used. And uh, well, I don't really understand now. what Web3 is. Can you, I, I couldn't define it if someone were to ask me. Uh, well, it's a base. I mean, again, uh, I think it's probably going to warrant a lot larger discussion on that. But, uh, you know, uh, I think uh, in terms of uh, sort of the decentralization and other things, but a lot of times, uh, you know, people talk about like that, um, even like having the NFTs uh, and, uh, you know, blockchain technology and so on, right? Uh, just because you have that doesn't mean that it's going to be successful. And now we're seeing a correction in the market, right? Uh, with uh, all the tech companies. So, but yeah, I, I agree with you. I think we're far away uh, in terms of this AI. That being said, I, I think if they just stuck to the fact that the COVID pandemic has led to, you know, the disruption and advancing things, yeah, I mean, that makes sense. I mean, here, I'll give you an example. We've chatted about this off offline, but I'm, I'm teaching a course right now at uh, Mount Royal uh, a section, both in person and then a section that's online. And to my amazement, I have significantly less students in my face-to-face -face class as opposed to the online. And it, it seems like students are wanting to have that online flexibility. At least in the uh, whether spring. Yeah, this is spring semester. So of course, spring semester is more intensive. Uh, but uh, I'm sure they probably many students that I've ch chatted with uh, anecdotally, they they like that flexibility because it allows them to go and work and, and uh, do other things. Um, and even they don't necessarily have to be located in Calgary. So some of them are not even physically here. They've gone back home, um, mm -hmm. and they're working and, and so on. So they just like that flexibility. Um, actually, one thing that I, I wanted to just go back to in the first um, part where they talked about uh, learning to learn online, one thing that uh, they mentioned, there's this one paragraph that just talks about um, inequities. And so we've talked yeah. about this before, but just even having poor access to internet, the, the lack of financial resources or that digital competence to actually learn online, uh, there could be geospatial barriers and, and so on and so forth. So some of those things uh, I thought it was interesting to kind of bring up. And uh, actually, funny enough, today, uh, I don't, you probably received some of the emails, but like at Mount Royal, our entire system was down today. Um, and so uh, it's kind, it kind of interesting. I actually had, like I have students who have the, the one of their first major assignments is due tomorrow. And all sorts of emails coming in about not being able to access the, the, the files. And so it was kind of interesting. So my kind of uh, fix to that was just sending them by email the files. I mean, I thought it was interesting. I mean, I, if I was a student, I probably would have downloaded that last week as opposed to, you know, this assignment being due now Monday. But uh, yeah, I guess they've been working on it all morning and who knows what the, the, the actual situation or issue was but it's funny how dependent we are uh, just you know if you don't have that internet access or that system yeah. access and now you can't access the files uh, i i recorded a google meet session for the online course in which i explained the assignment so students weren't able to go and access that and so i, I emailed the link and so it was really interesting just uh, some of the the hiccups that we deal with well you know you raise a good point about uh, dependence on the internet. So this is related to that. Um, the, there was a network outage when I was at work in the library not, not that long ago and understandable. I think probably a local node gets overloaded yeah. or something. Um, and it was, it was fixed, you know, within that afternoon. So it was fine, but actually someone had to tell me because I, was working on a word, I had a word doc, I had a markdown file, I was doing some, uh, I, I had some transcripts for research uh, and I was coding them qualitatively and uh, I used a program called Invivo and that's, so that's just on my computer. Now my files, a lot of my work files and Windows documents sync to OneDrive, right? So there is, they just weren't syncing, okay. but they were still saving locally. And I was working somewhere else in the coffee shop and someone said, oh, like, how are you getting anything done? Like the internet's out. And I realized <laughs> uh, how valuable Cal Newport's advice has been because I've been working with these, as per his digital minimalism, more offline tools for writing rather than working directly in Google Docs. A, because 
the fewer tabs I have to have open in, in Chrome, the better my work laptop battery life is. But second, it's just, it's less distracting. And so I didn't even notice right away. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> but when I did need to access Drive, it became a problem. And then I was using my phone hotspot for most of the day. So, I mean, it, it only lasted me so long. Um, we did have an article from Forbes. Forbes publishes a lot of stuff. So I, don't know, I always feel like I have to consider the source when I bring up Forbes, but uh, they had a, I thought an interesting one uh, about IT and it says, yeah, in a life, a life in full, five tech areas where IT education should take, take a step back. So there's um, a bunch of areas where they felt that, you know, IT should back off. And this is not necessarily just in response to uh, the pandemic, though I'm sure that was ramped up by it. Uh, and we don't have to talk about them all, Chris, but there, there was a few in here that I found quite interesting. So <laughs> related to our other discussion, the first is monitoring behavior with AI. So that their first paragraph here is pretty interesting. So it's a standardized test providers use algorithms for their at-home testing to monitor whether someone is cheating or if the designated test taker is the person sitting in front of the computer. So right away, are they the person that they're supposed to be? That raises the questions. Some private schools use similar software to ensure students are paying attention during online classes. And businesses have started experimenting with monitoring happiness and productivity to protect their bottom line. So looking at facial recognition, scanning everybody in the office to see who is potentially productive by who's really happy to be at work. Super creepy. Um, but from here, it's only a tiny step until we put cameras into the classroom and offices to predict performance and uh, whether to provide support. So they just talk about all of the kind of baby steps into educational surveillance uh, that is coming. And we mentioned that yeah. before with proctoring. Proctoring software is the obvious example where, you know, you have to actually has to watch you. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, it's... It's funny, these kind of things, like, again, like how we talked about earlier, it's like a bit of a cat and mouse game. But I mean, I, I haven't had a, a situation where I've had to go and monitor or have uh, final exams for such a long time. But it, I, I guess the same goes for even in person. So are, are people having to, and I, I don't know, I mean, have, if you look at my picture from my, um, my ID picture, it's, you know, do I look the same as what I am in person? <laughs> I, you have I not have no aged a day, my friend, you look exactly so, the same. No, maybe, maybe, but, uh, you know, again, it's, it's just funny. I mean, I could imagine just even like the logistics for somebody to go and verify if that person is the person going and mm -hmm. taking the test. And I guess it is further compounded, like when, in, when it's in the online environment, I mean, what do I know who is taking the test or not? Yeah, we won't have to authenticate with a password anymore. We'll just authenticate using our uh, Google glasses and it'll just know everything. Sorry, <laughs> I you couldn't go. help myself. <laughs> Uh, the second one on this list was insecure and unregulated cloud services. I mean... I don't think there's much to add. Um, yeah. do people have two factor on for, and you know, for the cloud services that their institution provides, is it properly secured? And as a public service notice, I know I worked with many people. Uh, we've instituted a lot more in my institution, mandatory two factor authentication, which is a problem if you don't have a smartphone. And I think professors are disproportionately high percentage of people who do not for lots of reasons. It is very helpful. And I think the authenticator apps work locally. So you don't even need internet access on your phone or device to make it work. I highly recommend them. But they also talk in that article about people using their own clouds. So they non-regulated like their own personal accounts and stuff to upload work sensitive documents. Obviously that's, um, that's a place where they need to take a step back. Um, yeah. what, the one I thought was really interesting. I mean, there's a bunch here. Uh, always on. So they, they have a quote. So it's, you can reach out to me with any questions regarding your child at any time. Uh, they're looking at this from a K to 12 perspective and from an IT perspective. So this is like an IT person, right? While it is just a polite phrase, school districts increasingly regulate expected response times from their teachers. 
in my experience. Employees similarly expect workers to be available by phone outside of traditional hours, et cetera, et cetera. So this has happened to instructors. This has happened to teachers, particularly during the pandemic. I think it's also happened to IT people. Um, and I do worry about uh, the excess burden of troubleshooting these technologies, especially for online learning in schools that have not historically done it. And then the burden that falls on people in IT to learn all these things, to support them, to always be on, to have to respond immediately if something goes wrong during an online exam or something like that. So I think it's, it's a fair point that we don't want to burn these critical people out. Yeah, no, for sure. And uh, I mean, there's some people I know, uh, some of our colleagues where, you know, they basically, let's say the weekend, they take the weekend off, right, which I don't uh, see any issue with that. I mean, if we look at uh, traditionally, uh, you have uh, as part of our many people uh, that are teaching, they have as part of their course policies, that they'll get back in, you know, maybe uh, 24 to 48 business hours, right? Um, you know, that being said, I mean, imagine like a, the situation that I'm in, I'm, I am responding to my students, it's the weekend right now, mm -hmm. their assignment is due on Monday. Imagine if I didn't, they would probably <laughs> be freaking out. And in fact, actually, yeah. it's funny, already, I've had been asked, uh, requested by a handful of students to get an extension because of this system outage, and which I, I don't see any reason to have that uh, extension, especially this isn't something new. If somebody left it to the last minute, that's, uh, that's on them, right? Well, the right. internet is functioning outside of campus. Well, the, the problem was they didn't download the actual files and the LMS system was down, right? So that, that was the issue. But uh, yeah, it was just, again, you know, this is where I guess you kind of have to take that responsibility, right? And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, this this was available as of uh, you know 12 a.m. on Monday last week, and so now we're on Sunday, and so they had a full week to go and do it. And this is kind of part of the issue, I guess, too. Again, when you know you leave things to kind of the last minute. So, but uh, again, I mean, these are kind of aspects that you have to take into account. Uh, that um, you know everybody is going to deal with things differently. I mean, I. I accommodate my students, especially when things are due, but uh, imagine there's probably many people who wouldn't do this. And then what are you going to, you're going to face the, the real life situation where people are not at your beck and call, you know, 24 seven. Right. And that's, that's what happens in the workplace. So. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Um, there was only two other aspects from this article. One, and I can mention them both. Uh, one was blindly using technology. And the other one was uh, virtual experiences as something to cut back on. I think the blindly using technology we have talked about, um, yeah. using things without intent, using too many, having to support them, um, not considering the privacy implications. I mean, that's I, we don't need to discuss it because it's kind of related to the other ones. I thought the yeah. cutback of virtual experiences was interesting. So they say that field trips and science labs provide valuable experiences, yet in a time of shrunken budgets, virtual trips and computer games have taken their place. That's, that surprises me. I have seen more and more of this, uh, even outside pandemic related stuff, even pre pandemic, like, oh, it's so difficult to have this connection. Well, we'll just do this online thing. Yeah, I don't think this is going to work. If more, if a larger percentage of people are learning online and spending more time in front of a screen, it's kind of, you know, it's not the same as an in-person event or, or, uh, or you know, a trip to the campus to check it out before you enroll or a field trip where you actually get to network. I mean, it, I don't know. I mean, I have done networking in online environments, but I find it very difficult. Yeah, no, for sure. And again, uh, I guess part of, uh, I think this article was maybe more geared towards like K to 12, but just from a budget standpoint, um, you know, even legal kind of uh, implications, there's uh, been a, a huge cut in terms of just taking field trips, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, I mean, I, I, I thought it was kind of interesting. It is cool to be able to go and check out some of these things virtually as well. And I mean, I, I think you can kind of uh, pick and choose. I mean, obviously seeing something in person is uh, that much better, but in any event, um, but yeah, it's a, it was a, a good little article from Forbes. 
All right. Well, that concludes uh, our kind of rundown of the news uh, as of late. Um, so, uh, again, if anybody wants to get a hold of me, you can go and visit me on my website, which is uh, Chris with a K, K R I S H A N S, Hans, uh, so dot C A. Uh, it has my social media handles and so on. And I'm Eric Christensen, and you can find me at ericchristensen.net. Uh, I maintain a tech blog, which is more updated than it used to be, which is tech-bytes.net, techbytes.net. And my Twitter account, which I very rarely check, is at E.G. Christensen. All right, awesome. Thanks so much, Chris. Take care. Yeah, always a pleasure. You can learn more about EdTech Examined by going to our website, edtechexamined.com. There, you'll find ways to subscribe, as well as host information, our social media accounts, and our blog posts. Our blog posts are also published through Medium on the EdTech Examined publication. You can contact EdTech Examined by emailing us at hey at edtechexamined.com. If you have an EdTech question you'd like us to answer on a future episode, you can email us or reach us through Twitter using the hashtag EdTechOfficeHours. You can find EdTechExamined on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at EdTechExamined, and we also have a LinkedIn page you can follow. Until next time.